I'm Adam Jackson. And I'm Gabe Lunas-Deseski. We're two serial entrepreneurs and investors here in Silicon Valley. We're building a new talent network called Brain Trust and have created the Way Work Should Work podcast, where we'll dive into new business models, incentive systems, and ownership structures that will affect how every single one of us works. We're joined by top tech investors, business leaders, and academics on the front lines shaping the future of work. All right. Well, today's guest is Lisa K. Solomon. Uh, she's a designer in residence at Stanford's D School and founding chair of the Transformational Practices and Leadership at Singularity University. Lisa is a passionate speaker, author, and educator, and thought leader focused on helping leaders learn how to be more creative, flexible, and resilient in the face of increasing complexity and change. Boy, we sure need some of your wisdom now, Lisa. Lisa's work focuses on developing teachers and amplifying skills, mindsets, and behaviors required to lead positive change. She's co-authored at the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Moments of Impact, How to Design Strategic Conversations that Accelerate Change, and most recently, Design a Better Business, New Tools, Skills, and Mindset for Strategy and Innovation. Lisa lives with her family in Menlo Park, California. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Thank you so much. So fun to be here. So Lisa, we, we have a, a lot to cover with you today. You have just an incredible background. And, but why don't we start at the very beginning? Can you tell us like where you grew up, how your upbringing shaped the person you are, and then a little bit about the work you do today? Oh, absolutely. Well, it's so great that you're doing this, bringing new ideas to the world, particularly as it relates to the future of work. And I love conversations because I think that is where we do our best learning. So it's really exciting to be here. I grew up in Philadelphia very far away from where I currently live now in Silicon Valley on the suburbs on the main line and feel really lucky to have grown up there. And I think most importantly, looking back, have had the opportunity now that I consider myself an accidental educator to have experienced high school formative years at a Quaker school that really, really changed my perspective around what a community could be and how that kind of community can foster learning. And looking back now that I'm an educator and I even had the opportunity to go back to my alma mater and be a guest lecturer there after my first book, I was able to be a guest in my beloved international relations class, Mr. Nikolai, Gary Nikolai. And at the time, Mr. Nikolai was just, we all thought he should be on Jeopardy. He was one of these brilliant guys. And every day our textbook was the New York Times. So we all walked around with these like dark ink stained hands from like going through the Times. And he really used the context as his fuel for learning. And that's what I remembered as a kid, that this was a, an insatiably curious educator that really cared about how his students engaged with the world. But going back to be a guest, I got to see Mr. Nikolai through adult and even parents' eyes. And one of the things that was extraordinary was how he welcomed each and every student into his class. Eyeball to eyeball. Um, Hi, Gabriel. How are you? How's it going? Adam, how are things going? And just created this environment of care and allowed me to understand how Quaker values that really honor community, because I'm not a Quaker by religion, but I really benefited, particularly in those formative years, of being in an environment where every student felt seen and heard. Fast forward now, 30 years or so, where I am now an educator at Stanford at the D School, where we're trying to teach human-centered design. And isn't that exactly what Mr. Nikolai was modeling for us? 
focusing in on every single student to check in with them as a human before he dove into any any of the material for the day. So I shared that as a microcosm, I guess, of my experience in Philadelphia, where it was a very caring community where people really wanted to know how you were as a human before they cared about what new AI, emerging tech, disruptive, whatever you were working on. So I try to hold on to that. Hmm. It's interesting. So Lisa, you've had an incredible experience on the forefront of kind of design thinking. I'd love first you to talk about, I think sometimes there's people talk about human-centered design and they talk about design thinking. Can you describe the difference between those to us? Yeah, people really get caught up, I think, in the words, right? Are you a designer? Are you a design thinker? Is it human-centered design? Honestly, Gabriel, like I, I sort of feel like I'm an advocate for design writ large. I fundamentally believe that if you make decisions that affect other people, you are a designer. And so one of my favorite things to do is to work with leaders that couldn't possibly draw anything that resembled anything and immediately discount their creative ability to say, oh, no, designers have to be creative, to which I say, no, designers have to be intentional. Designers have to be curious. Designers have to care about the choices that they're making so much so that they put the rigor ahead of time to, first of all, discover what it is that the people that they're designing for need and the discipline to go out and test if those ideas are the right ideas. So I think to me, at the end of the day, design is a process of discovery and iterative learning. And design thinking was really coined. I don't know who exactly, you know, created coined if it was David Kelly initially at IDEO. I mean, it's been a practice around for decades. It's gotten more popular in the last 15 years. But design thinking put a method behind it. It put, oh, wow, you know what? You can put people at the beginning, the, the heart of, of it. You can actually empathize and observe. And then you can go out and formulate an idea and then test it. And so I think what it did was it created some structure around a philosophy that was really about, can you understand what people want and need? Not because the data tells you, or not because your business plan tells you, but because you know them and understand them perhaps even better than they know themselves. So I think that they, they are all sort of touching upon different aspects of design, which to me at the end of the day is having the ability to understand how to take in the world from different inputs, whether it's observation, ethnography, design-centered research, where you're asking different questions and you're really immersing yourself in the experience of the person that you're designing for. And that could be your customer. That could be your employee or people that you work with, your colleagues, your partner, your supplier. I think everything can be designed. Now, there's different disciplines behind it. When I say that, I'm in no way take away from the years of craft and the talent that some people have for taking those principles of design, those intentional choices, and turning them into bits or beautiful assets or graphics, right? That's an application of it. But I think to me, the general notion that design, as I said earlier, is a practice of discovery that allows you to then go and give form to those ideas to rigorously test if those ideas are useful is something that everybody can learn. Hmm. So I want to dig into an example because I think it'd be kind of fun for people we talked about this before that you're one of your first jobs at an innovation firm, you were hired by Dunkin' Donuts, right? And they were, they were worried in the nineties that their customers had discovered the donuts actually make you fat. Yeah. Big surprise. So, so you, foods are not good for you. Turns yeah. out. So, 
walk us through this example. You get brought in and like normally as like normal design would be, how do you make a better donut? How do you make a more tasty donut? Yeah. Um, but they were kind of approaching it from the completely other side. So like, how do you even approach a project like that? That seems almost like counterintuitive, right? Yeah, it's a great question. And again, I did this in the early 90s. We didn't have the label design thinking. Ironically, I was working for a marketing firm in part because we were helping existing companies grow their business. That was marketing. Later, we've now been able to understand with a little bit more nuance what these things are. At the heart of it, it was design-centered innovation. It was fundamentally questioning or re-examining what it was that the organization was doing or the company was doing on behalf of their clients. And we should might be fun to talk about general nutrition centers because that was another one of our early clients. And at the time, the, the, the genius that I was working with just had this wherewithal of like, let's understand what customers want. Let's not look at these big statistically significant marketing studies, but let's actually go and watch them. So at the time, you're right. Dunkin' Donuts was like, holy moly, everyone in America is on a diet. We offer the most fattening products, you know, aside from like General Sal's chicken, like we are in trouble now that the word is out that donuts are fried. And the question was, should we make a low fat donut? Should we make it like that makes sense? That's what the data tells us. Everyone's on a diet. We have a fatting product. Let's go make a low fat donut. But at the time, there was this little upstart. And part of design is having your antenna up for the adjacencies and for the for the small signals that are that are happening elsewhere that can give you some data about what else might be going on. So there was this small startup in I think it was Virginia called Krispy Kreme. And Krispy Kreme, as you remember, was a revolutionary approach to donuts. They were celebrating the fact that they were making these fresh donuts with a conveyor belt that customers could see like hot off the shelf. Like you can't get any fresher donuts than Krispy Kreme. And in spite of, again, all the data saying without a doubt, everyone was on a diet, never going to eat a donut. But, you know, again, people were lining up around the corner for Krispy Kreme. So like if you're in the business of bringing something new to life, that should hit your antenna. Like your spider sense should be going off. Like what's going on over there? Is that just an anomaly? So they sent me down with the biggest video camera you can imagine. Cause again, this was the early nineties and I got up super early at seven in the morning and I just started interviewing people and asking them like, why are you in line to get these donuts? Like what, what is this donut doing for you? I got the most amazing answers and I didn't even know it at the time, like how, how revolutionary it was and how important it was to get this data. I mean, I had people whispering into my camera, like my day is going to be awful, but this is going to be the best part of it right now to, you know, a teacher being like, listen, I'm going to have a really tough meeting with my colleagues. If I bring in a dozen of these donuts, it's going to go much better, you know, to, to all kinds of things, you know, I'm going to give back to the volunteers. And so what you learned, what I learned in that was like, there were all kinds of reasons for why people were buying donuts, not necessarily because of their calorie intake. This was not a nutritional bet. This was an emotional bet. This was a community bet. This was a a social bet. And this helped me understand very early what now Clay Christensen has called the jobs to be done. There are multiple jobs to be done if you're able to absorb them. And so this was just a very, very early lesson in understanding that donuts in this instant weren't doing the job of you know, delivering healthy meals. They were doing all these other jobs for people that had value and that they were willing to spend money on. And long story short, this research, and I, like they, when I showed them the video, they were like, 
like, oh my gosh. And in part, you have to take a leap of faith because were these statistically significant insights? No. But does that make them any less valuable? No. Right. So designers take a leap in the qualitative. Some people call it sort of the thick data versus big data, like the juicy leaning in something special is happening here. Right. Honoring a leap of faith or a point of view. And we coupled that with some other data. It's not like we didn't do the other data. And that helped formulate a different strategy, which was a designer's great gift is to reframe, not how do we make a low fat donut, but how do we serve our customers better? And in this case, what we realized is that yes, people felt the stress to be healthier, but they also just felt stressed in life. And so could we expand their coffee line to give them more joy that way? And the other thing that it surfaced, which was so interesting, was that Dunkin' Donuts didn't necessarily had a product problem. They had a business model problem. And the fact that they were making donuts in a central factory and then shipping them out. And why do people love donuts? Because they're fresh and they smell great. They bring you back instantly to when you're on the boardwalk and you get that like old fashioned donuts. So when you go to a Dunkin' Donuts where you're getting donuts built some, you know, that were baked somewhere else, you're not getting that smell. You're getting the smell of the cleaning product on the floor. So it was a different question about how to create a different sensory experience in order to honor what this was for many people, which was a quick reward. Lisa, this, this is super, I, I love you hit on so many awesome points there. I, I've been a, a digital product developer my whole life. And the, the key, I think you're, you're hitting on this is appealing to the emotional sensory of people, right? Like it sounds simply, you know, oversimplified, but you know, making someone happy with a product is generally a good thing. But you know, like you said about the teacher bringing in a dozen to make friends and keep the peace, right? I mean, that's, that's a powerful thing, right? And so what I find, what, what came to mind as you were speaking, and I'd love, I'd love your take on this because you're down there at Stanford, you're sort of in the middle of these middle of this, not, not you personally, but you know, we, there is this just very controversial topic now around social media and its role in our society. And, you know, some of the billionaires who, who became very wealthy on Facebook are now denouncing it and calling it the new cigarettes. And I can't help but draw some similarities here with the donuts, right? The donuts make people happy and sort of give them what they want, but you know, not great long-term health consequences. Facebook, I mean, you know, if you're on this, uh, if, if one were to be on this bandwagon, that social media is destroying society and, Trump and blah, blah, blah. I, I'd love your take on that. I'm sure you, you know, you've got some insights here. Yes, Adam. How much time do we have? No, I, I and Plenty. I, was, you know, there, there are people that are way more in this sort of connection of policy and technology and all that. So I, maybe I'll approach it from a focus group of one. Right? Well, well, look, I, I think you're, I think you're starting. I think you're uniquely qualified though, to talk about design ethics and impact on society and that sort of thing. Right. Well, Adam, I will say this, actually, this very question is what inspired a class that I teach at Stanford with the incredible Tina Seelig, who has written many, many books on creativity. And now Drew Endy, Professor Drew Endy, who's the head of the bioengineering program at Stanford. And this, we, we teach a class called Inventing the Future for this very reason, Adam, which was this belief that there's so much emphasis right now, particularly in Silicon Valley, on technology and coding and what can the code do versus what should the code do and what should the code not do. And so this, this like mantra of Silicon Valley, move fast and break things, ready, fire, aim, like, ooh, 
groups, you know, like I would say the one difference with the donut is that a donut is not digital, right? Like you eat one donut and then you're like, that didn't feel good. My body's telling me something that's on me. Digital, you're unleashing code into the world that, you know, you then can't get back. You can't put that genie back in the bottle. And in fact, just this morning, I heard the head of Instagram on a morning show who was like, yeah, we missed it in 2016 with the misinformation. We didn't move fast enough. Well, that's got serious consequences called democracy. And so I think that there's a a problem in Silicon Valley around accountability for the long term. And you're exactly right about what's happening right now in social media, which it is, it is a tobacco thing. It is, and it's worse than that. I mean, it's, it's, it's not only worse right now in the short term, which is terrifying about the influences of where we're getting our information coupled with the really assault on truth that's happening from public leaders. So we don't even understand what true is anymore. There's another thing that's being talked about that I don't think is urgent enough, which is what's happening to our, our young people, what's happening to the next generation. We don't understand what's happening to their brains that are in this constant like, 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 like. They're not getting the time to think for themselves and they're essentially getting assaulted. And with, with this technology coupled with not just the technology, but with hundreds of neuroscientists, of behavioral scientists, of learning scientists that are every day applying their know-how to make these technologies addictive and to make them really in service of the business model versus in service of long-term health of these young people, right? You look at the studies around anxiety among young people and it is alarming. It is worse than cigarettes because again, it is scaled. It is at scale. And, you know, people are just like, either they're not willing to make the brave decision to take something off of their technology slate that is making them money, or that's just, they're somehow incentivized to think that's not my job. I don't know what is happening, but you can already see it. And this, this, I remember, I think it was last year I participated in common sense media does great work around understanding media and they're increasingly taking on technology and then taking on, um, lobbying, you know, to, to, to take their research and bring it to Washington. But again, we see a disconnect between what technology execs know versus what Washington policymakers know. And there's a huge disconnect in knowledge there and particularly the long-term ramifications of it. And I just really worry that um, we're not having the long-term view, particularly for our young people, you know, that the oops is going to be way too late. So all of this is a long way, Adam, of saying this is what inspired this class I'm teaching with Tina and Drew called Inventing the Future, where every week we introduce Stanford students to an emerging technology and ask them to create a 50-year utopian and dystopian future projecting out the implications of this technology. We are point of view agnostic on the technology. What we care about is that they're practicing imagination, long-term thinking, creativity, anticipatory design, and essentially opening up their own neural pathways to be able to breadcrumb from the known to the unknown. And we just don't have enough time. Organizations are not incentivized to say, wait a minute, before we build this, let's go into the unknown. What could go wrong here? Right. CEOs are not rewarded for not doing the thing that could have gotten them in trouble. They're rewarded by all the stuff that shows forward momentum. So I think we have massive misalignment there, not to mention we haven't practiced these skills, these skills of imagination, of curiosity, of really moral long-term thinking that I just think we need in urgent demand right now. Thanks so much for listening to The Way Work Should Work, brought to you by Braintrust. Like what you're hearing on our podcast? Are you ready to take the next step? Visit usebraintrust.com backslash match 
to get matched with highly skilled technical talent today. And for our listeners of this podcast, we're offering a two-week free trial. That's right. Top tech talent delivered straight to your inbox within 48 hours, risk-free. Don't wait. Go to usebraintrust.com backslash match to get started today. That's U-S-E-B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T dot com backslash M-A-T-C-H to get started today. Yeah, it, it's an it's definitely an incentives problem, right? Because people are, you know, Instagram's not going to give this up. TikTok, there'll always be another one. And it's they are handsomely paid to create this FOMO and these get people hooked on dopamine hits. And I, I agree with you. I, I actually think all of it is com- is a big red herring, except what you mentioned, what's happening to kids, right? Like the, this endless shame cycle. And, and you know, what this, it's like, you used to go to school and you're the most you could be bullied was six hours. right? And now it's 24 seven. So one thing I remember, I, I, I was so excited about the other threads. I, I forgot to come back to the common sense media experience that I had because I think it does come back to design and David Eggers, I think it was him. He, he had a panel of these young people of uh, various sharing their stories about technology and how it is really disrupted their lives. It's really destroyed their lives. And you could hear, for example, this one 14 year old talk about the fact that she just wasn't sleeping at night. She couldn't put down her phone. She couldn't stop really looking at these programs and Netflix and all that. And you could almost hear the judgment in the room. Like, why don't you have digital media rules in your house? Like, why, why do your parents let you have that phone in your room? And, you know, and, and I, and I, as the dime designer, I was like, we are asking the wrong question. You're going to tell me you're asking this 14 year old girl to go up against these neuroscientists and these AI experts and these PhDs that it's her fault. Isn't this the most pervasive way to try to address this problem? I, I was incensed by it. I mean, I just felt, and, and that's why I see, I mean, full disclosure, I'm, I'm a mom of two teenage girls and I see it all the time. Like if we just had better digital media hygiene, no, the system is broken. And it is unfair to ask a young person whose executive functioning brain is not developed to go up against these hordes of PhD that are designing for them to be addicted to them for them to be stressed, for them to be anxious. And I think it does. I was thinking about this, you know, knowing we were going to have this conversation today. It does relate to the future of work. These are your future employees and your future leaders. What kind of foundational stability are they getting right now? So this is a big, big problem that we are not talking about yet at the level that we need to. For sure. I mean, I, I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Jim and that common sense team. I actually, we, we they're actually a brain trust client. They, we, we build software for them. It was funny. I, I met them uh, several years ago and it was, I was fascinated by the aggression they had toward Instagram and YouTube. And I remember like just being a dumb, naive guy with no kids at the time. I was like, who cares? Right. Just delete the app. You know? And it's like, it, I, I've come 180 on that because now I have kids and they're not quite on the phone yet, but, and you know, I, I, Tristan Harris used to, um, work out of that office. Maybe he still does. And I, uh, when he, when he, when he first came around, I was like, what, what are you talking about, man? And now, you know, it's like, wow, how prescient this guy is. And like, so Lisa, when do you, like, when do you think we'll have a Tristan in every C-suite in a tech company? 
Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I think there's lots of missing seats in the C-suite, that being one of them. And as you know, there's a difference between having someone in the C-suite with someone who has real power and authority to make a difference, right? And in many ways, I'm, always, I'm always looking for patterns, right? Like we've had, you know, for example, people in senior positions focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion for a long time, not a new issue. How much power did they have? How structural were some of those choices built into the strategy, into how we foster culture? Um, and so we can use these moments as opportunities to make real change, right? Not just the cosmetic change, but the real change. But it requires us to slow down and to ask, what do we really care about here? What are we putting out in the world? How are we authentically making the decisions for ourselves at, in the same way we make them for our customers? So that's leadership. And I think that's been the essence of my work over the last 20 years is to say, what is leadership in, in a moment of continued change and complexity? What are we asking of our leaders? Because, I mean, we could even just look at it like where, where do a lot of leaders come from? They, they get MBAs, you know, master's in business administration. For a long time, I've been arguing like, what is that degree? Like, shouldn't it be mastering business ambiguity? Like, what are we administering? You know, we have to develop practice time in these new leadership areas of curiosity and empathy and imagination and resilience and relationship building and storytelling. We're doing it a little bit and we're seeing it, but it's like very much on an a la carte basis, right? So I'm always trying to look for those leaders that I think are modeling those behaviors and be like, look at that, look at that. That's what we need more of. I mean, that's a great segue. It was the next topic I wanted to dig in with you is you know, what are you telling leaders these days? And, you know, we haven't even mentioned the elephant in the room. I mean, we're all locked in our, our home offices here. There's, we've lost this personal interaction. I was, I mean, I was just, I'm, I'm reading a, a book on neuroscience right now, and it's talking about how physically being in the same room is like, it, it, you know, the energy, like nonverbal, right? It, it, it's such a big part of how we communicate and bond and build trust and diffuse conflict and it's all been taken away, right? It's completely obliterated, rightfully so or not. We don't have to get into that. But what do you, how, you, how, are, you, how are you coaching leaders now? Or what is your, what's your thinking on this? I mean, it's a really great point, Adam. And it's like, it's over time. And I'm, I'm really actually intrigued by uh, some people are raising the important question. We've talked a lot, for example, about resilience. We tend to think of resilience as like episodic rebounds. Like, oh, you didn't, you didn't, you know, make your quarter, you know, let's bounce back. You didn't, you didn't make, you know, the play that you wanted to, or the deal fell through, bounce back. This is a different kind of resilience. This is like sustained endurance. How do we handle that kind of, like, that's a different kind of energy. And I think, you know, that's been the transition we've been in when we were looking towards the fall, getting back to whatever normal-ish felt like. We're now in a new phase, not to mention the increased complexity about what's happening in our political environment, what's happening, you know, in our, in our physical environment. I mean, I'm calling in from Silicon Valley. Our fire season is far from done. We've just had two of the biggest fires in the state's history. The air goes, you know, to qualities of 200 AQI and above. I mean, that affects all of us, right? Like that affects us to our core around our sense of stability and well-being. So what, what do leaders need to do? They need to show compassion and care, like, and mean it. You know, they need to make sure that people are touching their employees and saying, are you okay? What is going on? How can we be there for you? What can we take off your plate and mean it? Not just like show, oh yeah, we care. Okay, now go make your quarter numbers. Like to take a look and be like, what is urgent? What is urgent? What, what keeps us going? What is gonna allow us to stay in business? Because if we can stay in business, we can keep people employed. And we have to take a hard look. Like, is 
this the right business we can be in? Like, how else can we pivot or make some changes in order to create value for people in ways that, again, are aligned with what their needs are of this moment? So I think, you know, literally carving out time every day to say, let me check in with someone. Let me call someone. Let me, let me not just, you know, project out on a company-wide webinar, but like, can I actually reach out to people? We've been doing that in the spring quarter. For example, we reached out to every single one of our students personally, individually. Are you okay? What's going on? Because we couldn't get a read to your point, like not being in the same room, so much of the cues, because we're asking people to take creative risks in our class by definition. It's already unsettling to be in a D school class because, you know, you don't know, you're, you're not used to like, there's a multiple choice of creativity. You gotta, you gotta keep trying. You gotta put yourself out there. Now we have to do it remotely where we can do what we typically do, which is start with a, a presencing warm up that gets people more comfortable, more relaxed. How do you do that on zoom? So, so we spend time calling every student. We're spending a lot of time now thinking about like, how can we reach out to students? We just for started, I just started teaching a new class, for example, called Designing for Equitable Futures. We just started last week. We got a notice that one of our students had lost a lot in the fire. We checked in. Went, hey, how are you? What's going on? What do you need from us? That takes time, right? You can't do it if you're gunning every day, gun, gun, gun. So I, I, I really hope that leaders give themselves time to slow down, give themselves to take care of their own a sense of well-being so that they can project out the kind of care and compassion that you can't use social media for. Yeah, I mean, I, Great I, advice. I can speak to that myself. Just I think at the early part of this year, through, and it took me quite a few months where it was just baseline survival. Right. Like, I, like, I just felt like I was, I was plugging the holes and just trying to survive and like get, get around the next corner. Like in two weeks, it's all going to be different. And then it was four weeks and six weeks and six months. We and, just got off a fundraise. If you couldn't tell, that's what he's talking about. <laughs> and one of the things that I, I noticed there was that when, it, when I'm in survival mode, it's really hard to be creative. It's hard to invent when you're in this point, when you feel like the ship is like sinking, right? Thinking about inventing a new ship versus just like <laughs> making sure you don't go down into the ocean. But you talk a lot about shaping or, or inventing the future that you want to see. I want to like dig into that a little bit and understand like, how do you start? Like, how do you, how do you, how do you advise other companies? A, a lot of the listeners may be like executives at, at large non-tech companies that are going through massive transformations and are trying to reinvent themselves and reimagine how they deliver products and services. So I'd love to start at the beginning. Like how, how do you advise people and companies to invent the future that they want to see? Yeah. A great question. Uh, and, it, and it is shaping a lot of my work going forward. In fact, some of the most exciting work I'm doing is working with my colleagues at the K-12 lab at the D school that's specifically focused on primary education. And we just released an article earlier this week called Educator as Futurist, which is all about shaping the future. I mean, if you think about it, for example, in K-12, we spent a lot of time studying history. And studying history is super important because it helps develop pattern recognition, the ability to hold multiple perspectives, to, to be critical thinkers. But we can't influence history, can we? Like it happened. You know, there's no courses that are part of the common core on futures. That blows my mind. 
that blows my mind. So we're trying to fix that humbly, small, small ambition. But one thing I would say from the start is to pause and say, what's happening in the external environment that is meaningfully going to affect the future. So a lot of, I don't know if you guys are doing this, but a lot of what we learn as leaders and CEOs, particularly when we're developing strategy is to be like, is to do a SWOT analysis. Maybe you've heard of that. Like what are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? What are our opportunities? What are our threats? Super important. It's important to notice that the focal point though is today on what you're doing, like internally, your organization, what are your strengths versus what's happening in the external world. So futurists, scenario planners and strategic foresight start with a different acronym. They start with an acronym called STEEP, which stands for social, technological, environmental, economic, and political. What's happening in that ring that might then change the dynamics of your industry, which ultimately might give you a chance to make a future shaping moment. And so what, what you'll do is you'll spend time articulating, like, what are all those things in the external realm that are meaningfully changing because of how events are unfolding dynamically? So for example, in the social realm, like think of all the implications that COVID has had on the changes in our social behavior, anything from where we're gathering, as Adam said earlier, to restaurants, to where people are living. People are migrating for the first time that I've been in the Bay Area in 20 years out of San Francisco. I've never seen a down market in San Francisco. Like that was crazy pants to talk about that, you know, five years ago, or even three years ago. But if you're thinking that this pandemic is going to be around for a long time and you have the ability to move yourself out of a densely populated urban environment where you are destined to bump into others that may be infected, wouldn't you? And you have the ability to do your work elsewhere where it's not tied to a close commute why would you stay in that city, right? So the dynamics are changing. So you could unpack any of these and just list out not what your organization is doing, but what changes are you seeing in that macro environment? And for those that are uncertain, because we don't know, we don't have a crystal ball. What you do is you do basically a spectrum analysis where you take one of those. Let's, let's take San Francisco, for example. Do we think that this sort of migration out of San Francisco is short-term? And it's going to come back once we have a vaccine or whatever, or is this going to be long-term that we're in fact going to see a continued migration out of cities, right? We don't know, but at least you're playing out, you're teasing out the spectrum. And then you would say, what factors would lead to this side of it being short-term and, and what would lead it to being long-term? How do we go and monitor those signals? So that's one way to get started having different conversations about what's happening in your external environment. And you can imagine this takes time. This is not an easy exercise. You don't just plug in some sensitivity analysis to a spreadsheet that you had for your last business plan. This works well, for example, when you bring in external experts in different fields. So when I started doing scenario planning work about 20 years ago, we had a group called the group of remarkable people, a hundred or so experts in astrophysics and computer science and in journalism and in cultural anthropology. We even had an astronaut and a musician. We bring them in to provoke us to think differently, to think sideways. It's one of the reasons why, for example, our firm Global Business Network was the incubation for Minority Report, right? Only now, 20 years later, are we starting to see some of that haptic technology come on. They imagined it then. Why? Because they had conversations with interesting people asking what if, what if, what if, what if, without criticizing, without that would never happen because. So lots to unpack there, Gabriel, but I think the first thing I would say is to really try to invest and 
understand what's happening in the external environment, even as it folds. So some of it is an imagination and I could share more tools that we use. And that's a lot of what we teach in inventing the future. But some of it is also just looking to examples that are happening in other parts of the world. So for example, early on in the pandemic, I'm part of this amazing authors group with, with authors all over the world. And one person was giving us the sort of G2 of what was happening in Singapore. Thinking like a futurist, you're like, oh, they're three months ahead of us. They're doing temperature checks. They're doing hybrid learning. They're doing things that with plexiglass. And, and it's like, that's data for us to take in and to use. And just today, for example, the New York Times pointed out like, it's, it's not a pretty story. And again, we don't want, we don't want bad news and entrepreneurs certainly don't want bad news, right? They are wired for good news because they've got to keep momentum forward. But like, what can you learn from other countries or even other time periods where you were in one position, but then you had a fall and the New York times were just talking about like, you know, God forbid, if America is in collapse, what are the signals? What can we learn? How do we allow ourselves to rehearse even the dark futures to get ahead of it, to say, well, how do we shape the future by trying to prevent some of those things from not happening. Not the least of which is invest in the things that we do want to happen. Lisa, that, that's an awesome framework. I'm like taking notes here. And just, just curious on the San Francisco thing, what was the verdict? I, I was just real-time riffing. I don't know. Oh, like, oh I, I thought you actually worked that study. No, no, I'm just real-time. I mean, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, we got to flex our observation skills like crazy. And again, getting back to the leadership question, to be willing to ask questions about things we know nothing about. I know nothing about transportation in San Francisco or housing, truly nothing. But I am starting to hear stories when my nephew, who is a 30-something that lives in San Francisco, who's like, yeah, we just got the greatest deal ever on, a, on an apartment because everybody's leaving and rates are great. So Again, that's similar to the Dunkin' Donuts story, right? Like, yeah. you know, the official future, which is what, you know, futurists call the future we have in our mind, which is often the rosier version of what is, you know, we had experienced what's known, what's known but rosier. So good news in general, humans are wired for optimism unless we feel like we're in a threat or, or flight response. But the problem is, is that does, doesn't serve us well if what we need to do is tap into our peripheral vision. It's to say, wait a minute, is there a pattern going on here? What's going on here? And then later we get the evidence. Luckily, someone says, oh, wow, yeah, this is a real thing. So, so I think the question is for leaders and for innovators and entrepreneurs is to like lean into the instinct and the thing that's catching their eye that feels like an anomaly. How can you go and you learn more versus discount and say, no, that's not in my model. So therefore, I'm not going to pay attention to it. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to The Way Work Should Work, brought to you by Brain Trust. Like what you're hearing on the podcast? Ready to take the next steps? Visit usebraintrust.com slash match to get matched with highly skilled technical talent today. And for listeners of this podcast, we're offering a free two-week trial. That's right. Top tech talent delivered straight to your inbox within 48 hours, risk-free. Don't wait. Go to usebraintrust.com slash match to get started today. That's usebraintrust.com slash M-A-T-C-H to get started today. So, so, so many more things. I feel like we could do another episode on it. Gabe, will you grab the next topic? I, just, I need to close my door here real quick. Yeah. Before we go on to that, I'd love to talk, maybe use some of that same framing to look at maybe the, the topic which is near and dear to us, which is around future of work. And maybe some of the some of the big trends, or how if you were if you were working with a large enterprise right now in, in the United States, like how would you help them kind of unpack the forces that might 
have a dramatic impact on their workforce in the future or how they deliver their value propositions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, what, what an important and big topic, like lots of ways to unpack the future of work around the future of value creation versus the future of relationships versus the future of connectivity, future of culture, future of talent. I mean, so many different ways. And, and I will say like that is a fundamental design principle too, which is to get the initial question, right? To spend time questioning the question. There's a famous joke. How many designers does it take to change a light bulb? You ever heard this? why do we need a light bulb? Right. I mean, so, so <laughs> you know, so I guess I would say like, it really, I think depends upon, you know, how you're even examining the future of work, you know, is it the future of productivity? So I certainly think that one thing to be thinking about is of course, like how is work going to get done? And I think one of the things that's miraculous really is how we all have all adapted to one of the most extreme disruptions I've ever seen in my lifetime, which is like Friday, you're working in the office Monday, you're not. <laughs> Like, you know, and now we've had the last seven months to kind of adapt and get into new norms. And, you know, and we even see this, like at first everyone was like, wow, I have so much time. I'm not commuting. What am I? And now people filled it. Right. And we're starting to see the adverse effects of some of this, you know, working from home. Adam talked about like being in the same place every day and not seeing people, you know, I think some study and I didn't look at it closely, but some horrifying study about how this epidemic is affecting women in significantly bigger proportions than it is men. That because we're all home, you know, we're still going to unfortunately traditional roles where women are getting the, the, the burden of housework, the burden of childcare, the burden of taking care of things that they might not have had to when their children were at school. And, you know, the response is that they're leaving the workforce. This is not a short-term thing. This is a long-term thing. So if you're someone that is thinking about, wow, I think the future of work is going to really depend on diversity. Boy, you better be paying attention to this. It was um, over a million women have left the workforce since this pandemic started. And these are, these are structural changes, right? I mean, it's very hard to come back. It's especially if you're under economic duress and you can't afford childcare or school or whatever. And yeah, it's, it's, it's awful for so many reasons. So Adam, what a great opening to say, getting back to Gabriel's earlier question, like how do we shape the future? If you've heard that stat and you are a leader or business manager, and you know that you value diversity and you definitely devalue, value the women on your team, I would be calling them every, every single one of them. I'd be calling them, checking in, what's going on? How are things at, at home? What can we do to support you? The loss of that kind of person in your, in your organization is monumental, right? So get ahead of it. That, I mean, the thing that I keep going back to, I, again, I don't have a crystal ball, but what I'm always willing to say is, is that in your control or out of your control? If it's out of your control, then you monitor like crazy and you try to get as smart as possible. If it's in your control, then you make an experimental choice to say, what else can I do to favor it towards the outcome that I want? And what I would suggest is that when we are overwhelmed with so much stuff that feels out of our control, we forget to ask that question. Wait, what can I control here? What is in my control? I wrote an article early on in the pandemic called Living, Learning, and, Lean, and Leading in a Pandemic. And it's really sort of about this, like what is in our control? For example, you know, we can't control what's going to happen from the federal government and what, what kind of guidelines they're going to say or not say, whatever. But we can control, am I going to see somebody, you know, and get close to them or not? Am I going to, am I going to wear a mask or not? What am I going to do in your control? In your, now, granted, not everybody has that. And I, and I think one of the 
horrible things that have come out of it with glaring tragedy is the inequalities that this pandemic has unearthed around frontline workers, that people don't have essential workers that don't have the same kind of choice that knowledge workers or tech workers, you know, might have. And I think we need to take a really, really hard look at that. So I don't mean to anyway suggest that everybody has everything in their control that they can, they can't. And, you know, this is shine a light on that. So anyway, I know we veered. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's a whole other debate, right? It's like Newsom took the liberty of deciding which jobs were essential and which weren't. And many would argue all jobs are essential. And I think that really could have been handled a lot better. But speaking of things you can control, you can control who you vote for. And you have this interesting project called Vote by Design. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, I became an accidental civics educator in the last year. God bless you. Yes, I, I um, and again, through the lens of design, right? If design is a practice, going back, discovery and learning <laughs> that provides clarity from complexity and we can apply that to big things that are on the horizon, <laughs> like what big thing was on the horizon that needed a little bit more clarity from complexity. So about a year ago, I partnered with a fellow scenario planner and a neuroscientist that I uh, worked with for many years. And we created a pop-up class at the D-School called Vote by Design. And the idea was looking at the external environment. So this is our our whole conversation in this this one experiment, Um, taking a look at 2016. And we looked at the external factors that influenced what was arguably one of the most divisive and surprising events of our modern electoral history. Did we see any of those meaningfully change? Like, was there going to be less foreign interference, less social media influence, less echo chamber, less sort of narration from pundits and polls? No, of course not. It's going to be amplified, right? So so why would we expect voters to feel any more agency when the external environment was going to be more, not less? Secondly, we took a look at what actually enables individuals to feel confident in their vote, particularly first-timers, and we really didn't see anything. And so we created a short program that allowed first-time voters to better understand how to break down this abstract concept called voting into a critical thinking approach that will allow them to understand their own values and how it applies to them as voters. Because what we learned, again, similar to the Dunkin' Donuts from going to talk to students, students don't have an apathy problem. If you look at a lot of the demographics and you say, what's wrong with those young voters? Why aren't they voting? They're apathetic. They're not apathetic. All you need to do is to take a look at some of the incredible activism we've seen over the last four or five months. They are not apathetic. They lack agency, meaning they don't actually understand how to think like voters. Why? We teach them how to be students. We teach them how to get an A on their U.S. history AP. And we teach them to memorize important dates around the suffrage movements and voting rights. Act. That's important. But that doesn't mean they know then how to look at a complex field of different individuals to say, which one of these individuals will I vote for and why? So vote by design is a very simple process that reframes the voting process to not be do I like this person or this person? Are you a Dem or Republican? Are you for this? Are you for that? To say, what is the job to be done? When you are hiring a president with your vote, what is the job that we are asking them to do? Like in detail. And then based on that clarification, what past experiences, leadership qualities, and personal attributes would make someone best for that job? 
how do we know? How do we gather evidence? And if somebody has a different opinion than you, like I think we need a bold leader, but Adam, you think we need a pragmatic leader. Great. Now we can have a conversation. Now we can say, wow, that's so curious. Why do you think pragmatism matters? Here's why I think boldness matters. And then we can go back to the job to be done. How would that help someone do that job? So that's what we've done. And then the last piece about it, bringing in the futures is to say, okay, we're making this decision now, right? We're getting this historical data to make the best decision we can that's making an investment in the future. How might the future change and why? What are the conditions in which this leader is going to have to operate? So we created five scenarios. This is a year ago. We created a scenario of a natural disaster where wildfires were burning in the West while Gulf hurricanes were hitting the Southeast. That's called last week. We created a scenario of dangerous militants taking over cities, Portland, and that was based on Charlottesville, what happened. We created a scenario of a pandemic, of a flu-like virus that emanated in China and took down the world economy. We wrote this in May of 2019, right? Not because we're clairvoyant, but because we did exactly what I said to Gabriel we were doing earlier before. We were looking at the external events, taking small, what looked like anomalies in history, looking at the forces around them and saying, of course, they're going to happen again. And so what we did in this process was we exposed students to these future scenarios and asked them, what kind of leader do you want? What kind of leader do you want addressing the American people in these kinds of crises? And it was very powerful for them because it took it out of the academic removed set of conversations and really allowed them to embrace it because we literally asked them to make presidential briefings embodying the qualities that they thought mattered on behalf of this future scenario. And I can tell you- How do we export this to Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, where people's votes actually matter, unlike where we live? Oh my gosh, Adam. Well, I have been on a tear. I mean, if you see bags under my eyes, it is because taking our own design practices over the summer, we turned this into a digital program that allowed all teachers to bring it into their classrooms. We had professional development trainings and whatever. And guess what? We found out teachers were so tired. And even though they knew this was important, they couldn't bring it in. So then we said, okay, well, we'll just run it for you. So my colleagues and I, I think just running the programs ourselves, like later on today, I'm like, give me your Zoom, give me your students. I will run it for you. I will parachute in and we have a number of us. And I think we have touched this point over two, maybe 3000 students with this program. And we created individual self-paced workbooks. So again, we, we listened to teachers. We said, okay, we know you care about this, but we also know you don't have any more minutes. We know also know how exhausted you've been trying to adapt your curriculum to remote. So just give this cool interactive student workbook and allow them on their own to explore these questions. And you can use class time for conversation. And then the last thing we're doing, which has been so exciting, is that we are partnering with unlike other unlikely civic educators and activists in the form of coaches and professional sports. I ran this program for the Chicago Bulls a couple weeks ago. Last week, I talked to the National Association of Basketball Coaches, a thousand of whom have signed a pledge to say they want to get their student athletes not only registered to vote, but active, feeling their own agency. So it's through those kinds of bets, right? Experimentation, learning. What do you need? How can I create value for you? How do I make this easy for you? And when I talked to the coaches, I was like, look, here's how you break it down. While they're stretching, ask them this question. You know, if you have 10 minutes after you watch films, try this. Not like go through the curriculum bit by bit, but meet them where they need to be met. Fascinating work. Thank you so much for the for that important work that you're doing to help empower the next generation of voters. Well, I'll tell you this, Gary, I would say this. 
it's been some of the most exciting work I've done because at the end of this 45 minute or even sometimes 30 minute exercise, we ask them, I used to think dot, dot, dot. And now I think dot, 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 which I think is like the best sort of mark of a mindset shift and an agency shift. And just time and time again, we've heard, I used to think it was hopeless. And now I think I have a part to play. Hmm. Or I used to think what my parents thought. And now I think for myself. Yeah. Or I used to think that this policy was the only thing that mattered. And now I realize it's really the character of the leader. Yeah. So when you see those kinds of changes happen so quickly, to me, that's design in action. Yeah, that's oh, fantastic. Thank you so much. We're going to transition to something we call a lightning round. So the idea is just kind of stream of consciousness, quick answers. The first one would be, what's one technology that you think will dramatically accelerate future work? Imagination. <laughs> I know it's not emerging tech, but like, you know, we got to get ahead of it to understand which of these emerging techs to fast forward and which to slow down. So to me, imagination is a human technology. Lisa, what, who's one person you follow closely on this topic of the future of work? I spent a lot of time reading what my dear mentor and colleague, Eamon Kelly, writes. He is now the chief futurist at Deloitte. He was the head of Global Business Networks when Global Business Network when I worked there, and he's genius. And he's been talking about the transition from hierarchical power to network power for a decade. So we're, we're a big fan of his work. Actually, we should have him on the, on the podcast as well. We, we talk about it as we talk about like the unbundling of the firm. He is brilliant. He's brilliant and is a sense maker and he is the most articulate, um, narrative creator, right? I mean, he not only understands it, but he knows how to communicate it in ways that other people will get. So yes, I endorse him as a guest. Fantastic. What is, is there kind of one article or piece of research that, that's fundamentally shifted your perspective on, on kind of what work looks like in the future? I don't know if there's one article you know, years ago, I was really moved by John Seeley Brown and John Hagel's power of pull, you know, which again, talked about the shift of moving from like assets to flows, which is very similar to Eamon's work about understanding how value is going to get created and how that happens in a networked, decentralized social, social media filled world, which you could say is sort of like fuel the gig economy. And I think, you know, what's happening next around the de democratization of some of our core technologies. So I think, you know, that work is really, really important. And the other that, again, you know, now that we're in such a moment where we're in triage mode all the time, I remember it's probably about 10 years ago, reading an article by David Rock on the neuroscience of stress and really understanding, just as you were saying, we were saying earlier that when our brains are in constant state of uncertainty and threat, we retreat to that limbic brain of survival. And, you know, if our workers, right, writ large are continuing to endure this state of threat, how are we possibly going to ignite creativity and imagination? So when I learned that and I realized that most people are not wired to lean into ambiguity, to lean into challenge, not because they're not capable of it, but because they've not practiced it. They haven't had the, we can only get better at the things we intentionally practice. This was, this was a game changer for me because it allowed me to understand and ultimately what became moments of impact and so much of my other work that everything can be designed. And so if you go in to any conversation or any moment and realize, oh, the person I'm designing for is really feeling on the back foot. They have one foot out the door or they're one foot, you know, there's something's going on. You're going to design that experience to be very, very different than if you hadn't taken 
take the time to realize that that's what, what is going on for them. Lisa, I feel like there's, we uncovered at least two or three topics that I'd love to do another hour each with you, but we, we are bumped up on time here. This was such a pleasure to speak with you and, and hear your thoughts on this stuff. And sincere thanks and appreciation for the great work you're doing, benefiting the next, hopefully current generation and, and ones to follow. Where can people find out more about you and the D-School? Great. Well, thanks so much, Adam. So I'm on Twitter. I'm, I'm not yet on Instagram. So I try to be active there. So that's at Lisa K. Solomon, all spelled out K-A-Y and all O's for Solomon. And on my website too, I'm constantly, you know, posting new ideas, new articles. So that's a good place. And the D School is doing some amazing work around educator as futurists. So like I said, we just published an article. We've been doing a lot of work around helping school leaders prepare for uncertainty. And of course, Vote by Design is a very, very active website. And certainly in the 30 plus days leading up to the election, we're doing what we can to just give people agency that they don't have to have this election happen to them. I think that's the biggest thing I I could say. Like a lot of people feel like their vote doesn't matter. It matters. It matters a lot. And the evidence is clear that when you have a plan, whether you're going to vote early in person by mail, don't just leave it to the abstract, actually break it down. It's worth 10, 15 minutes thinking through. So we're really doing what we can to amplify the amazing efforts that so many are doing to help make sure that all of us feel like we have a voice in our future. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for being here. And hopefully next time uh, we can get together in person. Adam, Gabriel, thank you so much. Thank you for this work. It's so important. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity. Wonderful to have you on. Have a great day.